I, I think just because you're not here, just chip in whenever you feel like. Uh, yeah. You know, join yeah. in and we'll work around you because you can't see us. Will yeah. do. Uh, I'll, uh, and I'll do my best to visualise what you're all wearing. Uh, well, we've just been with Sweaty Betty and uh, all of our browns. It's somewhere between athleisure wear and uh, beach body <laughs> tailored shorts. Yeah. Oh, very good. So it's uh, it's your it's your it's your wicking wardrobe. Um, I thought the crop top was a mistake, Ian. But I know. There but we go. <laughs> is wicking wicking and breathability our uh, our middle names yeah. today. Hi, I'm Ian, Editor-in-Chief of Internet Retailing. I'm Jamie Merrick from Salesforce. I'm Martin Shaw, Head of Research, Internet Retailing and RetailX. Great. Well, welcome three. And from the heavens, who is on the line? And I'm Sean McKee. I'm the e-commerce and CX Director at Shoe, the footwear retailer. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. If we make it to the end, you will be our first. So uh, thank you for joining us remotely. Now, uh, let's crack on straight with you then, Sean. Tell us first of all a little bit about Shoe, just in case people haven't come across any of your stores or website. I guess Shoe is a branded retailer of fashionable shoes to fashionable people who tend to be at the younger end of the spectrum, sort of with a core consumer who's 18 to 25 but the reality is we have, we're a much broader church than that and we sell branded shoes to anybody who's sort of under the age of 50. <laughs> uh, we've also got a kids business and that's that's a growing part of the business. Um, yeah. I think we're very firmly positioned in the middle market. We're oriented around convenience given that our product isn't exclusive to us so how we sell is kind of important to us. We think about availability a lot and we, we think about customer service and just having a good attitude in terms of how we interact with the consumer. Great. So let's maybe just dive into that a bit. Because as you mentioned, you sell products that everyone else sells. So yeah. that leaves you at the mercy, I suppose, of people with availability wanting to discount uh, and so on. So how do you manage to elbow a space in the customer's mind? I think we do two core things. The first is we make sure our product management systems are very sophisticated. So when we get a hold of the right product, we make sure the whole business is visibility in real time and that we can get to that product irrespective of the physical location of the product. So that's absolutely key. So it might be in one of three DCs or it might be in one of our 134 stores, but in theory, subject to a few thresholds, everybody in the business can get access to that product. And I guess the second is we try and come at it from a consumer's perspective. We we make promises we can keep. We are organized around speed and accuracy, and we invest in things like a contact center that's in-house so that we have a genuine level of control over the, the journey that the customer experiences. Do you have a sort of palpable sense about how that consumer expectation of convenience is changing, has changed over the last few years? Is it going faster than ever before or is that not necessarily true in just what we talk about at conferences? Uh, yes, and I think that's obvious in a couple of places, Jamie. I think first, you know, we measure what they do. We organise our web operations around behavioural empirical data and what we can see is that the you know, the consumption of faster deliveries or the consumption of very localized deliveries has changed. And so we've had to feed the obvious things like click and collect in an appropriate way. But we've also had to make sure that we can do 
more volume on things like next day delivery or nominated slot or nominated day deliveries. That's obvious and consumer behaviour tells us that it is the case that that is changing. And the second thing is that, and I don't know if it's just about social media and the way that people discover products, but we used to have a business that was very much about a broad assortment, a really long tail uh, where a product would build over time and bestsellers would have a lifespan that was measured in months, if not years. Whereas now the business is much, much more itemized. We might be selling a much more refined shortlist of high volume items with a much shorter window. Um, in reality, you know, we can sell them to people for much less time and then they move on. So I think people are discovering product in a completely different way and getting bored in a completely different way. And so our business has become much, much more about items in the moment with services organized around speed because that moment is much more fleeting than it used to be. So I guess the bit you were talking about where you have a one-stop pool for everything, that is never more critical than now. Well, absolutely. I mean, there's an opportunity cost to having things out in stores and not in a DC because not everything is available for every delivery option that you might wish to offer. But certainly the principle of very broad-based availability just means that we work the inventory that little bit harder. So it's it's efficient for the business. That actually sounds really depressing. I mean, it sounds like there's risk everywhere. You know, fickle demanding customers, less time to get an ROI, smaller, higher peaks that give you bigger valleys in between. It sounds like that's a significantly more difficult, higher risk trading environment than one would think just by thinking about a shoe shop. Well, I would I would say that's true. I, I don't find it depressing, but I would say that is true in that we are now, you know, we all turn on a pin, very, very calendar driven. But I think if you're at the e-commerce side of a business where you're, you know, your day job is about innovation and change and consumer consumption looking different over time, it's it's not depressing. It's kind of interesting, but but the reality is, yeah, I think the rhythm of business has completely changed, and I, I, I guess that is no more obvious than the you know than Black Friday. We're just a few weeks away from Black Friday, and that has absolutely changed the rhythm over three or four days for most people of all of October, all of November, and half of December. You know, it changes so, uh, the rhythm in terms of it. Uh, it is more important than, or uh, that peak uh, has knock-on effects for that whole period. How do you, how do you mean it's changed? Uh, well, I don't think the demand has grown as a result of Black Friday. I think the mm. mix of what we sell and the length of time in which we sell it is different. So the month of October is less about seasonal change and getting into other product categories than it might once have been. November is, you can see by how the customer behaves, by things like your conversion rates and just how they, how they shop around the site, that there's, a, there's an awareness of what's in the calendar a bit, you know, a few weeks out and, and that affects their behavior. And the first two weeks after Black Friday in December just don't build the way they used to in the past. So you still very much, you will get a Christmas rush but it comes pretty close to Christmas and the first half of December really for me isn't isn't the peak anymore. Um, Processing and returns. And Christmas shopping has already <laughs> taken place at the end of November. Wow. I mean, it, it is, uh, is a changing world. So you've featured many times in internet retailing a very handsome cover. We've also been chatting with Stuart, one of your colleagues, about the sort of front end 
and we're talking about e-commerce, you're talking about how you're used to turning on a pin and that, you know, one of the other things I think has characterized our conversations over the years is this uh, maniacal obsession with non-stop optimizing and tweaking and tweaking and tweaking and just everything is being refined. So full stop, paragraph return, in the real world, you know, we're also talking about the logistics, the warehousing, transportation, things that haven't typically been able to turn on a pin for very good engineering reasons. It sounds to me as if you're now having to drive bits formerly known as infrastructure to be as flexible and responsive as the bits formerly known as e-commerce. Well, to some extent, yeah. I'll give you one example. We... We're working with our, our merchandise colleagues at the minute on availability at one of our DCs because what we can see on the website is a strong empirical link between the availability of next day product and the conversion rate we get on the site and then subsequently the returns rate we get from those purchases. So we're working with colleagues to effectively reposition the physical location of some of that stock so we can drive performance on the site. So I, I don't we're not rebuilding the infrastructure as such, but we are we are pulling levers in the business that e-commerce traditionally wouldn't have pulled or that didn't need to be pulled because we had a formula that just worked over time. Um, that's so fantastic. Yeah, yeah, but it's a it's a conversation, isn't it? And in, in the end, all of this is a is a conversation across the business, and also a recognition of where growth is available because growth isn't universally available at every one of our locations. So we've got to think pragmatically about, you know, what are we about, and and how do we achieve growth? I mean, it's, it's interesting. You always come back to this idea of empirical thinking, but also mm. using all of the levers. Uh, I was looking over an interview we did with one of your colleagues, uh, Rob Bridal, the uh, logistics director. And he yeah. gave us a really interesting run-through of the investments being made in the back end and, uh, you know, the integrated capable logistics ability. And he kept coming back to this idea of dot, 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 in order to satisfy customers, which is what you're saying from the other end, that in order to satisfy customers, we need to bend our business to do that. Yeah. It strikes me that you know you're very open about it. You discussed a lot. Is this, in your mind, a competitive advantage for you today, or are you really saying this is the minimum competitive must have? I think some of it is still an advantage. You know, I I think what we do on Click and Collect is still market leading in in, in terms of our ability to get at stock in stores and really use it. You know, and to use it accurately. But I think I think a lot of it's a hygiene factor. You know, it's it's about exercising all of the inventory that is available as quickly as possible. Where you know we're not a vertical, we aren't a mono brand. We've got to think about the battles that we have a right to fight, and and efficiency and convenience is where our battle is. And five years ago, it was probably more of a competitive advantage than it is now. And some of it, some of it to some extent is. But I think of it as a hygiene factor, to be honest. And that's why. Growing the proposition and trying to move things on just isn't it, it really isn't a it isn't a choice. Mm. You know, we have an imperative to continue to develop the proposition because someone else will. Mm. Just quickly on the store uh, side, do you say one three four? Yes. So is that your is that the right amount? Do you need lots more, lots less? What's the story uh, we, there? We, Jimmy, we don't know. Um, what we do know is we still, you know, at a philosophical level, we absolutely believe we're at our best when we have 
um, an interplay between both those channels and the consumer can pick and mix um, physical and digital that we perform at our best when we put the customer in front of real people in an environment where we can bring the brand to life. But I think we're pragmatic and open-minded enough to know that the market is changing and that while there will always be a role for stores in the right locations, those locations and the volume available in those locations might change over time. Mm -hmm. So I think we certainly see the sort of business we currently have, but we, we, we absolutely don't know the right number of stores and where they should be. We, we still think we have opportunities for growth, but that's based on our understanding of the market right now. And, you know, looking around us in 2018 and in 2017, you could say that the pace of change has picked up a bit. And yeah. so I think we, we, we know what we know and we're as good as today's level of ignorance. But I think, <laughs> you know, I think we know what the formula looks like. I think we reserve the right mm. to take a view on geography over time. And we're, we're doing everything we can to overlay our digital sales onto our store sales and really think about markets in terms of overall penetration and potential rather than just channel by channel, which really has been the way things have been done heretofore. Yeah, but as well as them thinking about the where of the store estate. Um, yeah. You've been doing a lot of work in changing the layout, operation and experience within those stores. I'm just yeah. thinking about taking out tills and having a sort of roving payment. I'm thinking about uh, yeah. building out your kids' shoe areas. So maybe just yeah. uh, in case people haven't seen some of those changes, just uh, give us an outline of you know, how you're flexing the store. Well... <sighs> I mean, our stores really do peak and trough in terms of busyness. So when they're at their most busy, and they're typically two and a half or thousand square feet of selling space, they're not big stores. We can really have issues around customers getting to sit down and you know just have room where mm. they can just see the product and try on some product. So doing something like rolling out mobile tills where we can shave 100 seconds off the average transaction translates to more bums on seats. And that's just a that's just a practical requirement of the environment we operate. And that's obviously been very, very useful. And then that has allowed us in turn to repurpose what was the old till area into more space for product display. And I guess we've up till this point we've used that for the kids' business and just you know, um opening hybrid kids' departments in adult stores has been on the face of it a very, very good idea. So I think one thing leads to another, but it all comes back to can we improve the operation? Can we improve the process or sell more stuff or spend less money doing stuff? And um, just the, the the cost to serve consumers via a fixed till location and all the knock-on effects that you get there has been a consideration for a time. And MPOS has really sort of opened up the floor of it. It's been really useful. I guess it's a win-win for customers because they want obviously want to be serviced faster. But I guess there's also the counter that says the longer they stay in their store, the more they're going to spend. But you've got the trade-off uh, before the more I want to, people I, I want to get in my store. I, well, I think I think that might apply to some retail concepts more than others. You know, mm. where we effectively sell a single category of product. I think it's more useful for us to get people to. Um, sort of get in and out in a way that is convenient for them because it really is an itemized level of demand for a, a pretty uh, discreet amount of product, typically one pair. So, you know, we, we, we definitely err on the side of convenience, I think. 
Mm. That that's right for us. But if we were selling whole outfits and the ability to build an outfit and had changing rooms in the corner and so on, that would be a very different question. Yeah, uh, that's well put. Now, Sean, despite your calm voice, just looking over the coverage of Shoe for the last year, you seem to be just active on every front: payment, click and collect, data, experience, store returns, blah blah blah. Very busy people. What initiatives would you say are driving the biggest impact? So, out of all of this busyness and optimization, which bit just makes you chuckle as you know this is a thing that's really driving things right now? Yeah. Well, so I've already mentioned what we're doing on on faster deliveries, mm-hmm. next day delivery, that sort of thing. But g- given that I don't buy the product and the area of the business I can control, for want of a better word, is you know the, the platform and how the platform works, we're still very busy on things like checkout optimization. And I think it might be the one last area of our really quite mature platform where we can move the needle in a way that is meaningful. So the the payment services that people can consume, the partners, of course, we work with to to give us the best um, experience for the consumer, and just the cost of operating at this end of the equation. So we still think there's a lot of work to be done around the checkout, and we're very open-minded about a measured increase in the number of services available. So we're open-minded about things like part payment, Mm. a small number of part payments, we have been doing things like pay later with Klarna. That's been quite useful. So while we don't ever want to get into credit or anything that looks and feels like credit, we are open to flexibility. And, and of course, that housed in a checkout that just works properly and that is sufficiently fast is important. Mm. We're 75, 76% mobile, so speed is, you know, a, a serious consideration in everything we're doing. So that, that's absolutely pertinent. We're also very, very conscious of the not just the B2C conversations that we're having, but the B2B conversations where, you know, our brands are, they don't live in a bubble. They have direct-to-consumer businesses. They have other um, wholesale accounts. Um, they have a range of relationships. So we're very conscious of the need to continue to look relevant and to have constructive partnerships with key brands. You know, so we're very open um I mean, we, we intend to go into a relationship in the next few months with one of our major brands where we'll extend our inventory and deepen the the availability of what we have mm. through using their warehousing as well as ours. And, and uh, you're not going to tell us who that is now, are you? No. Okay. Uh, <laughs> nice try in. I've got, to, I've got to ask. I've got to ask. <laughs> no, but they're a, but they're a, they're a major brand and they're a brand that cons- commands enough volume for it to be worth the effort for both parties. Mm. And. You know, so I think we're aware of we have to be aware of the B two B conversations as well as the B two C. Yeah, that's um, a good point. I, I, but but also we're informed by a bit of humbleness as well because you can buy your shoes somewhere else. So we don't take you for granted, and so I think that creates a, a, a an attitude here where we know we should be better, right. and we, we we genuinely try to do that. It's interesting about the the B two B bit. So, is it becoming more like well, you have to address it more like the B two C area, as it were, as you were saying, sort of make sure you can operate with these guys as smoothly and efficiently as possible. Is it becoming more of a thing yes. that you're discussing? Yes, it is. Um, you know, we used to be very protective of the digital estate on the website, for example. We were increasingly in dialogue with our brands as to what space they might want to take for product launches, what what we can give them in terms of hero banner space and that sort of thing. So I think the conversation has changed. And, 
you know, what's really what's really important to brands as well as those are things like adjacencies alongside other brands. You know, so they have they for all the right reasons have strong opinions and we work with them to make sure that we can accommodate each other's needs. Are you are you, know, you executing their- that discussion more and more digitally rather than, you know, Face to face or over the phone, if you see what I mean. You no, know, no, providing. no. That's to, no, that's abs- no. That is a, the, the conversation is face to face. Yeah. The execution is increasingly digital. Yes. Yeah. So you know, we obviously have a physical estate, but actually, the conversations are increasingly about digital and the the power of digital. Uh-huh. Mm, interesting. Now, um, we've mentioned mobile a few times. And as we know, the year of mobile has been every single year for the last twelve years. It seems that voice commerce is taking over as being the year of voice every year. I think I saw either an article or a podcast where you were talking about voice commerce. Is that right? It is right, yeah. Uh, so tell us your thoughts on voice commerce then. Well, I think there will be volume here. I, I, I'm not absolutely clear what it will look like just yet. But if I take a step back and think, well, what you know, what kind of business are we in? We're in the, we're in the business of convenience in the moment for impatient people who are technologically friendly because those are the people who are buying our shoes Mm -hmm. and you look at the consumption of things like amazon's echo or to to, to a lesser extent google home and all of us have digital personal assistants in our houses even if we're just getting them to talk like hipsters and play our spotify playlists we we at least are interacting with them even if we're not shopping on them and I think it's very interesting to watch Amazon because Amazon, in the speed and the nature of the iteration you can see around Echo, are showing us, to some extent, the potential and telling us an awful lot about the limitations of the medium because, you know, very binary questions are very good for voice. Complicated, nuanced uh, questions that need selections of answers are are maybe less so. So Mm -hmm. Echo, Echo with a screen says to me that a voice search that throws up a voice answer is probably not a fantastic place to be, particularly if you're Amazon. But there's something in the business where, and I can see a situation where uh, a pretty sophisticated voice search facility on our site that renders visual results and selections of results will probably be the place we tinker first because mm-hmm. it's an area we kind of understand. We understand that search works better than the average sort of self-navigated journey around the site and we could we could benchmark voice search performance against text search performance so we we could have somewhere to go in terms of measurement so i think we'll start very very small but given that people just wanting appear to want increasing levels of convenience and that they are to some extent educated by the device that's in their pocket and it's making voice easy to play with Yes, I think we yes. have an we have an I think we have an obligation to be involved in some way and and it's a bit like the year of mo- the first year of mobile for us was 2011 where it became really obvious that there was volume potential but it was only affecting 15% of our traffic but that's the moment to get in and play because by the time volume is available you can at least be in that upper quartile of people who are doing something useful mm. and I, and I suppose just being pragmatic as well you know, we're heavily reliant on searches on Google, um, organic traffic, paid traffic. Voice is going to play a role there, and we don't want to be caught short when it comes to just being visible in inverted commas in, mm. in more than just text. And yeah. uh, so I think we're obliged to play. Yeah, and it's interesting uh, that this year at NRF, one of the things that struck me was the use of voice 
assistance for store staff. So we saw a number yeah. of working demos that where they have their little security guard curly mm. earphone thing, and they were saying, "Do we have uh, you know an all stars in red in size seven? And yeah. then the computer would answer because it was linked to the stock mm. computer. So you know, I think there there's so many dimensions of voice as well as the customer one. I would just say it's important to try and separate the gimmicks from the useful stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that example you just listed is on the gimmick end of the spectrum, yeah, probably, so. because, <laughs> uh, well, well, you, but, but you know there'll be 10 gimmicks here before one useful thing. And, uh, you know, I, I think we've got to find a use that is genuine for, for this to stick. Just you mentioned also, if you don't mind sharing, if you can, you know, 2011 was 15% from mobile. Do you have yeah. the comparative 2018 stat? Yeah, we're 75, 76% now uh, in terms of mobile traffic. Wow. Still has a lower conversion rate than desktop and tablet. So it's about 62, 63% of sales. Wow. So uh, not a gimmick then. Yeah, well, I mean, if you compare it to, to the commerce cloud, Salesforce commerce cloud data across all the customers we have, it's about 3,000 so sites. That's yeah. above the average. The 66% is the average. Wow. Um, so Which again isn't, is, a, isn't a small number. Well, no. And, and I think that for the first time, it's you know, the orders are over 50%. So, wow. share. Yeah, right. it, just, it, it just makes it very logical for us to be organized around speed and convenience because we have average visits to a mobile rendering of our website of, mm. you know, three and a half minutes. So we we don't have time to hang about, and mm. you know that uh, it's quite easy to get organised around that because I think the imperatives are quite clear. Yes. Now speaking of organised and imperatives, uh, we've covered a lot of ground. What's exciting you about twenty nineteen? When you look at the empty calendar and think, what am I going to do next year? Was a glimmer of excitement. <laughs> Well, I think the things that excite me are very often a bit sad and not necessarily customer facing, but, <laughs> but we are going to be, we're going to continue to be very organized around availability and just continuing to make sure we perform properly back of house to, you know, to make sure that things are in front of the customer at the moment we need them to be. Mm. I've already mentioned the activity with the third party brand. We'll be getting involved in that. We're, we're doing, we're continuing to develop um, things like those payment services that I've mentioned. And we're also going to do the best service we can to our stores next year by getting local right in a serious way on the website. You know, So at the minute, we've got a website that to all intents and purposes is agnostic of where the consumer is mm -hmm. and then allows the customer to sort of self-medicate and select <laughs> what they want to do. And, and, and a fifth of that tends to be local. Um, right. What we what we want to do is make sure and use, you know, we want to geo-target where you are and change the functionality or at least the presentation of the site to reflect proximity to a store or your, your being outside of a store radius. I think we're getting to a place where we'll start counting some of the conversions on the site as a store visit and not just uh, a sale in the traditional sense because a store visit has a five times improved chance of a conversion. So store visits are a good thing. And then by the same token, we will downplay store content if we know there's just no prospect of you going there so that we can upweight things we'd rather you did. And we're mm -hmm. working hard on a you know a hierarchy of services that have operated income and profitability at their heart where we try and work out what's the best way to get, you know, for example, some delivery contribution from you because it's expensive. Yeah. Or what might lead you to a position where you're least likely to return shoes because cool. that's... 
that that gives us an advantageous position. Right. Well, my 2019 is looking boring and uh, <laughs> underoccupied in comparison. Uh, so, Sean, thank you so much for that. Really interesting rundown as ever. And I'm pleased to say I think you're joining us in the studio uh, for our next well, recording sessions, aren't you? So um, you're well. First, you welcome me in, and I look forward to next month. I believe in there at the end of the month, that's and I'll great. Um, I'll really I'm, I look forward to it. You can be our quiz master in chief as well. Now. We're talking a lot about all the activities you're up to. And Shoe, of course, is one of our top 500 retailers. Uh, But I think we can segue over to Martin now, who, not satisfied with the top 500 in Europe and the UK and the top 250 in Australia, uh, has decided we need to cast our net wider. And uh, we've just released a new report. Martin, tell us about that. We call it the growth 2000 because what we're looking at is the retailers which are just outside the top 500 and on occasion over the years we've seen as much as 100 to 150 companies kind of borderline. Sometimes they're in the top 500, sometimes they're not. So there's this area and we do see some trends over time as certain types of companies are coming into the top 500 more. So in particular we've noticed direct selling brands have become more prominent over the past five years. The Growth 2000 lets us measure what those companies that are bubbling under actually are. Mm. Um, So it's quite interesting. Um, We've got some very, very small companies, 100,000 revenue, all the way up to major brands and in some cases software companies which have a very small direct-to-consumer amount, which is what we're measuring. But over the whole, they're enormous companies. So so we've got very different types of companies. We've got brand selling direct. We have niche or regional retailers. And we also have international retailers looking to come into the UK. Right. And so the qualification to get into the Growth 2000 is very much focused, though, on the UK consumers. So where they shop, where they search, who they interact with on social, uh, the store footprint. So very much about uh, how the UK customer sees them. So in a way, it's a, a seedbed for new market entrants and growth companies. Yes, I think that's fair. <laughs> Good. Uh, so, so um, what are the characteristics of this sector then? So, you know, I know in the top 500, we also covered a massive range from a couple of million turnover up to more than 70 billion turnover. So, you know, that's got a big range. We're now saying we've extended the coverage to this next 2,000. Uh, how would you characterize, if, if you can, this, this group of companies? I would characterize them as eclectic. <laughs> um, yeah, they're, they're all sorts of companies. Uh, but I suppose what they have in common is that as a retailer, they're not as significant in the UK as the top 500 are, but they're still affected by all of the things that, that are affecting the top 500, the rising customer expectations that we've been talking about and how to address those problems. Though They generally have smaller budgets with which to address those. Mm. And um, the report has has just been published, so you can see it online, uh, internetretailing.net slash G2K, growth 2000. So um, you can uh, check on that there, along with uh, a full listing uh, of all of the 
of all of the companies there. Uh, congratulations uh, to them. And when you look through the report, some of the key areas are about how these businesses are getting themselves found. We've talked a bit about search, we've talked about local, mobile. So the being found is very important. Uh, then we've also talked about uh, how responsive they are. So once they're found, how quickly, how well do the sites load? So very much as uh, Sean's been talking about, uh, making sure that uh, you're there. Uh, a third area we've looked at is um, fulfillment. So once I've found you, you've responded, can you get me the stuff? And then a, a last area is around um, that conversation with the customers. It's not just one way, it's how they respond on social. So those are four big areas that we uh, cover off in the report. Uh, what has stood out for you in terms of how these companies perform compared to the top 500? In all honesty, I expected them to not be hitting as high a target as they are. But when we look at uh, just the core metrics like median uh, delivery timeframe, median delivery cost, or even looking at click and collect, click and collect is much less significant, but than it is in the top 500 where it's 60% penetration. Uh, but it's still very significant among the multi-channel retailers, hmm. like almost half of them. So it's not something which they're separate from. I think um, what, what surprised me is perhaps the similarities to the top 500, given the constraints that I mentioned before in terms of them mostly being smaller companies. Hmm. On the search side of it, so the finding bit is the characteristic you talked about. Social is often mentioned as a way in which to find all a lot of buzz around social, a lot of talk around social. Is it actually delivering much for these smaller companies? Because if we look at the numbers, again, our, our, our research we have across all our customers says that only 6% of the, all the traffic comes from social. So it doesn't seem to be an awful lot, but there's a, there's a sort of disproportionate amount of talk about it, if you see what I mean. Mm. I, I think it really depends on the type of retailer. And so for for the, I, I think when we, we do look at it by sector as well and, and penetration of something like Pinterest in mm. car parts retailers is, is very <laughs> insignificant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 22% um, according to your own statistics, Martin. Oh, yeah, got it in front of you there. I have, yes. Um, yeah, so, but but there, there are other companies where it's very important and, and you've got the, I, I mentioned the direct selling brands um, they function in, in this growth 2000 is, is in a lot of ways like, a, I suppose, an iceberg with the, the bit above the water being their direct-to-consumer angle. But the social there is not just to drive sales to their own site, it's also to increase brand awareness. And so for them, they wouldn't be measuring it just on referrals to their own site. Mm -hmm. And I um, would hazard the guess that they see more value in that than other companies would. Mm, and you also have, uh, of course, the customer service aspect of it. And, mm. you know, as we were hearing in the last episode, the importance that uh, Sweaty Betty, that uh, all of our brand place upon the brand story, the discussion, using their products while on holiday or exercising. So I think, you know, one of the things that we see here with, you know, the very extensive use of Facebook and Twitter at this level is that people are 
maybe communicating more with customers as a matter of course. Mm. So rather being a shop that markets, you're a brand that lives and has conversations. It's no longer one dimensional. Mm. Um, I want to find something. Exactly. Let's go there. It's let's find out where my order is or yeah. does this fit? And also, you know, it was interesting, you know, the comments that Sean was making earlier on about, you know, how they push and tweak and bend everything to perform, mm. whereas the benefit you get at the smaller or startup end of the market is a, a quick search. You can find a lot of the services that people like Sean have beaten up and optimised now being available to you as software as a service or on demand. So in a way, there are a lot of capabilities open to these newer growth companies that the big companies have had to really work hard to take advantage of or or create the market in the first place. Late mover advantage. Late mover advantage. Or you could also say, and this is one of the areas you're going to be looking at, is that you know if you'd started your business around 20, 2008, 2010, 2012, you had to be an engineer first to become a multi-channel retailer. Whereas now, basic capabilities are very on demand, so you can be a retailer and a brand before you have to be a technologist. So we can't prove that yet, but it's interesting. One of the things we're going to be looking at is the use of technologies, software, services by this growth sector to see what the ratio is of customer product communication versus engineering, building, etc. And Martin was talking last episode about marketplaces and their growth, you know, reaching maybe 47% of the market in Europe. There, you upload your product, and logistics, payment, returns, delivery is all taken care of. So I think we're seeing this change now for startups where they don't have that legacy, perhaps. Mm, yeah, and you've mentioned marketplaces. Um, there are actually more marketplaces in the Growth 2000 than there are in the Top 500, the 27 versus 7. And obviously the niche. Mm. So I, I think there there are marketplaces and then there are other niche marketplaces which are, <laughs> which and and there's the types of retailers which are adding on a marketplace because they know their demographic the demographic is very interested in a particular type of product and it's also they want to optimize that to be more of a hub mm. well look Martin, thanks for sharing that with us and, of course, the report. There'll be a lot of stuff coming out of the next year on the Growth 2000, so we welcome uh, those companies into the uh, internet retailing family. And I know that Martin's already itching to extend our European Top 500 to something closer to Top 5000, so plenty of work there. Do let us know what uh, you found interesting or controversial or where you'd like us to do more work on this. We've had very good response so far and we're excited to uh, you know, follow up this new avenue for us. So I think uh, time has just ebbed away. Sean, thank you so much for joining us and taking this time out of your day. Really appreciate it. Uh, Martin, Jamie, I'll see you next month. Looking forward to that. So, from the studio uh, to our listener, I uh, hope you enjoy yourself until the next episode. Thank you. Lovely. Good, good, good. Oh, he, fun. Is, he is very, very He's good. spot on. He is really he? very Dear good. Me. Holy moly. Dear Some me. Good answers there. <laughs> good recording stuff. All right. Job done. Love that. That was great.